Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161 AP76, Science, from the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 182, November the 4th, 1988. This evening, Otto Scott and I are going to discuss science. Now the subject of science is a curious one because the word science has changed its meaning over the centuries. It comes from a Latin word which means to know, and in time it came to refer to knowledge. Over the centuries, therefore, science primarily meant knowledge. and. In the medieval era, and for some time thereafter, theology was called the queen of the sciences, the key to all learning. And the basic curriculum was called the arts and sciences curriculum, because the sciences represented organized knowledge and the arts various efforts of human endeavor and achievement. However, what has happened fairly recently in the modern era is that the sphere of science known as natural science, beginning especially with mathematics, physics, and chemistry, began to uh, claim that only they represented true science. Subsequently, those fields were dethroned by biology, particularly with Charles Darwin. And as a result, we now have a very different definition of what constitutes science. And it's basically that modern definition uh, that we're going to deal with tonight. But I'd like to begin, before I turn the... Uh, platform, as it were, over to Otto with a comment or two about scientists. I believe that that is one of the most misused terms imaginable. I commented on it some years ago in my Mythology of Science, but very briefly it is this. We talk today about scientists when what we really mean are theoreticians, not men who are practical scientists, not, for example, geologists who are working with oil companies, the men who apply their knowledge and whose ideas will be very different most of the time from the men who call themselves geologists and teach in universities. In other words, we have equated ideas with reality. Or rather, we have taken ideas and supplanted reality with the ideas. The most conspicuous example of this, of course, is the dogma of evolution. It is not provable. There is virtually no realm of hard fact. But it is regarded as science and the professors, not scientists, because the teachers are 
called scientists today rather than the practical working scientists rule that anyone who disagrees with them is not a scientist. Now today we received a letter, Dorothy and I, from Phil Spielman. An outstanding letter, but there was a sentence in it which is very, very appropriate in this context. Phil wrote, and I quote, when nothing is real but ideas, then no evidence is required, unquote. And this is what you have in evolutionary thinking. Nothing is real except the idea, and therefore no evidence is required. And if you question it or produce any evidence that militates against evolutionary thinking, somehow you are ignorant and therefore unscientific and a fair target for abuse. Well, Otto, uh, what would you like to say by way of general introductory statement? <clears throat> well, I agree with you. I think the, the whole term, you began with the definition of science, which I listened to with a great deal of interest. Uh, actually, it's if a word that doesn't make any sense to me today, whatever, because it covers all sorts of things. Uh, and I recall as a boy reading constant references in 19th century literature to the scientific method, scientific history, scientific everything, uh, but never uh, has that used as an adjective has it ever been defined? I've heard a great deal, read a great deal about the scientific method, and I have yet to discover what it consists of. We're told that science experiments, that the successful experiment is something that's repeatable. Uh, <clears throat> but when I was running the uh, book on the rubber industry, we had a lot of papers from the elastomer division of the American Chemical Society. We generally got the second run of papers. The society itself and its journals would publish the first level, and then uh, I would be inundated by the second level of these papers. And I found, as a lot of other people have discovered, that chemistry uh, is in a gray area. You're dealing with uh, forms of life, as in biology, it's not fixed. These forms of life do not obey uh, the rules that are laid down for them because there's always some what they call free radicals that refuse to uh, obey the general rule. It's a chemistry rules on the probability theory. But I would call up the writers of some of these papers who would describe various experiments and say... Uh, why did you do it? What did you expect to find? What were you looking for? All you've given me is, is the record of an experiment to uh, which there is no particular conclusion. So that means it calls for another experiment along similar but slightly different lines. And I found that they couldn't explain why they had done it. And they wanted to be published even though the experiment didn't get anywhere. It was almost as a proof of effort. Yes. But effort doesn't mean anything. It's only results that count. 
effort is a meaningless thing. Uh, we run into this in the world of work, where somebody will say, well, I tried very hard, and I spent a lot of time on this, but that's not really the point. The point is, what did you produce? What good is it? So science then becomes a sort of disembodied abstraction, like the word progress. Somebody described progress as an invisible phantom uh, beating her wings uh, in the vanguard of human activity. Nobody could ever figure out what she looked like, who she was, and so forth. And we're dealing then with a superstition in the name of science. As long as that particular label is placed upon something, anything is acceptable. And you run into a religious attitude of indignation when you differ. You differed when you brought up, for instance, the evolutionary theory. And uh, that immediately stamps you as an intellectual redneck. You're not supposed to argue with uh, evolution. So I think, and of course you know, and, and as we both know, that some of the most critical letters we get in the Calcine Report is when we dare to take uh, up some semi-scientific subject which has been ruled out of our right to think about. Yeah. Now, this is a lot of fun. It's, it's great fun, and it, it would be a lot more fun if it didn't interfere with some very interesting realities and very crucial issues. For instance, on the SDI program, the Union of Concerned Scientists keep telling us that it can't work, and they really should direct those uh, conclusions to the Kremlin, which has spent over $50 billion and is making something work in space. So we have here, we're really taking a rebellious position when we discuss science. Yes. I'd like to call attention to an aspect of uh, modern science that I think is normally neglected. When Darwin's book first appeared in 1859, it was received with an amazing enthusiasm. Here was a basically dull book, and yet it sold out in two days and 48 hours, the kind of book which normally would take a generation to sell. And the reason it sold out was that it gave people an excuse to dump God, to junk the Bible. So they assumed. Yes. And Bernard Shaw said so. Mm -hmm. He said uh, people jumped at Darwin's thesis because it gave them an excuse to disbelieve in God. Yeah. And uh, Queen Victoria, for example, welcomed it also. Mm -hmm. It made it uh, unnecessary to believe in the Old Testament. Well, it took away the watcher in the sky. Yes. <laughs> well, one of the curious... <coughs> consequences of Darwin's work, which quickly appeared in Victorian culture, was what uh, Eckhart, Gilman, and Chamberlain have termed just in passing. So they're not responsible for what I am going to do with their idea. But 
What resulted was, and I quote, the adoration of the artificial, unquote. Well, this is a curious fact. But it did create a culture in which things more and more artificial became more and more popular. All you have to do is to look at modern styles, for example, especially women. Extremely artificial. Everything done to do away with what is natural and wholesome looking. But basic to it is the idea that I think came out in Gordon Child's book of some years ago, I believe the 50s, and continuously in print since then, the title, Man Makes Himself. Because man now supposedly has, because of Darwin, gained the power to make himself and to remake the world. So increasingly there is a desire to go against that which is normal, that which is healthy, abortion, homosexuality, anything which goes against nature because man is going to overrule nature with transplants with everything that is artificial and contrary to the natural working of God's order. Well, what you're really talking about was summarized in the title of uh, Andrew Dixon White's book, A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology and Christendom. Mm -hmm. now, he wrote that two volumes in 1896. I've not read the two volumes. Uh, I've got them. I keep telling myself I'll read them someday, but I've never gotten beyond page eight because I get angry and I put it back on the shelf. And, <clears throat> but I, I think the, the candor with which he approaches it in his introduction is very interesting. In 1896, Andrew Dixon White, who wrote a book about inflation during the revolution in France, and a very poor one, I might add, which has been reprinted hundreds or dozens of times. He's been given a great deal of credit. He's one of the two founders of Cornell University, a very aggravating university, too. And he begins in his history of this warfare with jubilating over the fact that the clergy was removed from all the major universities that their particular denominations had created and operated up until the 1880s and 90s. Now, by removing the clergy from the administration of colleges formed by various church churches, they took away, you might say, using Freud's term, the superego of the college, because it was like a lobotomy. All of a sudden, the spiritual significance of education was removed, and it left nothing but nuts and bolts. Now, a scientific theory, which you mentioned here, and I went into that, and I appreciated your comments on the difference between a petroleum geologist and a fellow in the classroom. After all, a petroleum geologist has, is, is judged and paid by results. And I talked to one of the winners of the gold medal that's put out every year for scientific achievement in the rubber industry, an English professor, or English uh, scientist rather, industrial scientist, had many, many in uh, inventions to his credit. 
And I said, asked him why it was that an industrial scientist like himself was held in such disdain by the academics and their theory of the ivory tower where they theorized and they didn't have to roll their sleeves up and do anything. And he said, well, I disagree with them entirely because the purpose of science, in his view, was to improve the living conditions of the human race. So therefore, he said, it has to be applied and it has to, in some fashion, help the world. If it doesn't help people, then he said, I don't consider it scientific. He said, whatever fantasies are floated are of no particular interest to me. Now, evolution was a very mischievous fantasy. Now they've backed off it, as you know. They don't any longer think that one species transmutes itself into another. What they're talking about now is that there are certain sudden jumps. And they don't talk much about the extinction of species, although they subtitle this the survival of favored races and the struggle for existence, struggle for life. They don't like to talk about the ones that lose. Yes, and they don't like to talk about the fact that racism is a product of Darwinism. Well, it Hitler explicit in the book, as you've often pointed out. Hitler was an heir to the Darwinian theory yes. of the struggle of survival of the fittest. He, in fact, used to regale his dinner companions with this over and again. Certain races, he felt, based on the Darwinian approach, were innately superior to others. Earlier you mentioned Andrew Dixon White and the fact that you hadn't gotten beyond page 8. Well, I had the misfortune of reading him when I was rather young, and here was a great classic. So I read him through, and years later I found that uh, he was hardly an accurate uh, recorder of things. In fact, Someone made a study of his famous passage indicting Calvin and Luther for their rejection of Copernicus and quoting statements from Luther and Calvin against Copernicus, whereas the truth was that neither one of it had ever heard of Copernicus. So much for Andrew Dixon's White's great scholarship but he's still very widely uh, regarded and uh, at least uh, once in recent years was reprinted. Well, yes, his Dover Press, as you know, reprints a lot of the things that are in the public domain. Mm -hmm. They've reprinted him. And <clears throat> he stands in my mind as the epitome of a certain type of individual, certain type of mentality that takes great pride in intellectual superiority. This is a very dangerous thing for any man to assume. We have all sorts of mysteries. Electricity is a mystery. We don't know what it is, and we don't know its source. We can tap into it, but we don't know a darn thing about it. It's never described as such. And just before I came over this evening, I jotted down titles of various two or three or four different books that I've looked into 
at various times that would fit this topic, and I noticed the case of the midwife toad by Arthur Kessler. Now, Kessler, of course, was a man of parts, some of them disparate, but in any, in any event, an interesting man. And the case of the midwife toad is a series of experiments that were conducted by a, a, uh, a scientist, if you like the term, a technician, I would say. A technician in Middle Europe, Hungary, Bulgaria, one of those countries. And he dissected a certain type of worm and also gave them electric shock, little electric impulses. If they went in a certain path, they got a shock. If they avoided certain places, they did not get a shock. And then he found successive generations began to avoid the shock areas. So he wrote a paper describing these experiments and his results. And of course what he was talking about was the transmittability of experience in the species. I've, uh, I've several times brought up the business of the cattle and the barbed wire. Yes. Where the cattle, in, in just a few years, the cattle stopped injuring themselves by running into barbed wire. They avoid barbed wire. And this happened to all the cattle everywhere. Nobody, I don't know how this was transmitted. The experiment by the European chap was repeated in London and was not the same conclusion. So they branded him a fake, and he was immediately, this was a different period, and we're talking now about the 20s. Uh, today he'd probably get a, a special award, but in those days it meant that the money stopped, he was disgraced, and he committed suicide. And Kester used this as a jumping off place. I believe he found in some of his experiments later that the man had been perfectly valid and that there was some situational reason that the people in London, perhaps a different species or whatever, didn't get the same results. But it brings up the whole question of results that don't fit the paradigm, which science will not accept. I mean, theoretically, any exception to a scientific rule disproves the rule. But in fact, exceptions are customarily brushed aside or under the rug. In other words, the science does not obey its own rules. Yes. Well, we have a problem today because science has been worshipped. Uh, it's a very important uh, fact that is commonly forgotten that the man who most hailed Darwin's book was Karl Marx. He wanted to dedicate a work to uh, Darwin and uh, Darwin didn't feel it would be expedient to have such a dedication. Well, uh, but he wouldn't, wouldn't grant him that amount of intimacy. No. But uh, what Marx and Engels recognized was this, that given the survival of the fittest, the universe of chance, then 
conflict in society was inherent in the whole universe. If you had a creation made by a sovereign God, then there was an ultimate harmony in all creation. Everything moved in terms of an overall purpose. But without that purpose, total warfare, total conflict. Hence, the Marxist thesis was validated by Darwin. Yes. But force, really. Mm -hmm. Darwin's really talking about force. Yes. Now, we go back on to Marx. Marx, of course, considered himself a scientist. Socialism was hailed as a science, mm -hmm. and Marxism was supposedly the scientific answer to the problems that arose out of capitalism. And Wittwogel demolished that pretty thoroughly, I think, because Marx was a bad historian. In fact, he, he didn't try to find out whether his theory was correct or not. <clears throat> but we go back to this Thomas Kuhn I've got down here who wrote The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, in which he talked about the paradigm and the fact that when the exceptions begin to pile up, then, of course, the paradigm falls apart but it's retained until a new paradigm is devised by somebody. Yes. This is where evolution is. The exceptions and the objections are mounting, but they haven't found a substitute. Mm -hmm. So this will go along, I guess, until somebody comes up with some plausible substitute, and then we'll suddenly be told that there's a new scientific genius on the horizon, and a new paradigm, and a new explanation for creation. And this brings me to, I think, the last book I would mention, and that is a book which came out about 10 years ago called This Wild Abyss, The Story of the Men Who Made Astro Astronomy by Gail E. Chesterton, Free Press, Macmillan, 1978. Christensen's book is really a rehash of the biographies and the struggles of the astronomers, including Copernicus and so forth. And to that extent, it's a sort of a student's book. But in his introduction, he hit a first-class bell. He said, the problem with teaching the hard sciences in universities today is the fact that they're not taught historically. They're taught as the state of the art, without reference to how the state of the art was achieved, and without reference to the detours, the wild guesses, the errors of the past, and in some cases, the discoveries of the past which led to the latest state of the art. So that a person who is educated scientifically, or educated in a scientific uh, following, has no idea of how this came about. Yes, and the scientist tends to believe, that is, those who are called scientists, that they represent uh, true wisdom and true rationality, and therefore they pontificate on virtually any and every subject, even though when they, uh, even when they know nothing about it. Well, when you're taught ahistorically, mm -hmm. it gives you the misleading impression of certainty. Yes. You don't realize the uncertainty of life or the uncertainty of science or the uncertainty of any other human activity. Yes. Well, I believe that's a very, very important point. 
and one of the key points in understanding why science is so destructive because it is rootless it has no sense of history and having no sense of history it is unable to see cause and effect in human affairs well they had great difficulty accepting Heisenberg who said that the observer changes what he observes mm -hmm. Otto you mentioned the non-historical character of scientific thinking I think the most devastating critique of that was given oh, about 50 years ago or more by Ortega y Gasset in his book The Revolt of the Masses and he said the true barbarians of our time were the scientists because they treat things which are a product of 20 centuries of Christianity as though they were like the atmosphere they are just there a part of the given of the world and therefore they lay waste all the wealth of the past the intellectual wealth unable to appreciate the fact that it is not a given it is not a part of the atmosphere like the air or the water since Ortega y Gasset wrote that of course we have seen precisely that triumph of barbarism scientific barbarism and with more university educated people than ever before our streets have become a jungle crime has increased we have savages with degrees running around and Ortega Gossett has been vindicated yes <clears throat> well of course when education is divorced from culture is it education mm -hmm when it is divorced from uh, religious faith of course it quickly deteriorates yes well this is all of a piece mm -hmm. uh, your religion <clears throat> which is the fundaments of your culture and then the workings out of your religion in the cultural pattern I mean courtesy is more than manners courtesy is an attitude toward others and the attitude has to be based on something besides uh, <clears throat> ordinary uh, ordinary grace the whole question of the technician is a very awesome one the Soviet Union I understand has many more engineers than we have they can't apply their skill outside of the munitions industry because the country is not dedicated to consumer products and I really question whether they can apply their skill in a really uh, creative way anywhere because I remember reading a biography by Mr. Porsche the uh, automobile manufacturer in Germany now the Porsche automobile which we all know is a worldwide recognizes very good car the factory was in existence before Hitler came into office and Hitler came through the plant and talked to Mr. Porsche and Porsche was surprised by the quickness with which Hitler picked up what he heard and of course he had plans for the automobile manufacturers to take part in various vehicles of war but he 
Porsche soon found out that the Hitler regime, which was willing to give them all sorts of money, was a very bad regime for a manufacturer because, first of all, the plans had to be submitted for approval. And second of all, no deviations were allowed, which took away from the whole business of trying to get the most efficient method. And it was very dangerous <coughs> to tell the Hitler regime that you expected to meet a certain quota or a certain production at a certain time because you were held to that. Nothing could happen. No excuses were allowed. Consequently, into this atmosphere of inhibitions and fear, the productivity and creativity of the Porsche enterprise under Hitler went down and not up. So you have the same sort of thing, I would imagine, in the Soviet Union and in totalitarian countries. And I'm amused, if you could call it that, by the critics of industry who take the Hitler in Hitler and Stalin attitude that you're capable, if you're an engineer, of turning out a perfect vehicle. And if you don't, you should be punished. And this is part of the superstition that surrounds scientific and technical and technological effort. It isn't considered a part of human trial and error. It's considered uh, almost in a religious light as something that's supposed to be perfect. And if it isn't perfect, there's a search then for the culprit, for the scoundrel. Yes. Well, that raises a point that I have referred to again and again. An illustration. About 25 years ago, I was in a discussion, three speakers, one from the Hoover Institution, uh, and then uh, myself and the third I believe was from the FBI and a state senator was the moderator and uh, I made a statement with regard to freedom freedom in education in particular the right to have uh, Christian schools and so on and after a very heated discussion period in a packed auditorium, the meeting was terminated and a school teacher made a beeline for me to charge me with being a quack because, she said, the necessary and inevitable goal of society has to be scientific. And in a scientifically controlled society, Freedom is obsolete. Really? Yes. Because if society is to be an experiment, you cannot uh, allow room for freedom. How can you control an experiment if uh, some of the people in the society are free to go their own way and do as they please? So, uh, the modern scientific concept of society which is taught in every state institution and a lot of private universities, virtually all of them, in fact, holds that freedom is obsolete, but they're not as honest as this teacher was. There could be no freedom in a scientific experiment. Well, I think we've all had the experience of talking to scientists who give you a little smile 
and make it very clear that they're condescending. Mm-hmm. And who also assume that you're against science if you criticize some part of science. Now, this is one of the most prevalent fallacies in our time. If you criticize welfare system, it's assumed you're against the poor. And if you criticize this or that, you're against the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Criticize science because science has promised what it cannot deliver. Yes. It is promising what only God can deliver, and that is the complete solution of all the basic problems of our lives. It's the crime of scientists is that they have tried to usurp God. And this is a very serious crime. They lead people into this area. Now we have... uh, we have, for instance, would you call medicine a science? Is medicine a science or an art? Is there any difference between science and art? Art is a form of science in my view, and science has got many of the elements of art in it because of the creative aspect, the experimental aspect. But I don't know of any artists who are telling you that this particular painting or this particular method of painting or this type of representation is the final answer and no other can be allowed because it would be inartistic. Mm -hmm. Yet science says this is the answer here and anything else is not scientific. Of course we have now, uh, this is slopped over into biology as you brought up and treating human beings as biological specimens. We now have a parts industry in which we're selling human parts we're selling uh, human body fluids, human organs, garages, you might say, for human beings, and genetic uh, transformations of one sort or another, hormonal interferences, and so on. So we're now reaching the point of the, I believe it was the Incas, who did have an operation that fooled with a pituitary gland and could produce giants or dwarfs. They didn't go as far as our people are going today, but they were a totalitarian society, if you recall, one of the most totalitarian ever ever created in which every single aspect of life and diet and movement and activity was regulated. Some have said that to this day the Incas are without a spirit of independence because it was uh, not tolerated and the deviants were removed. Mm-hmm. I believe that. Uh, certainly, you, you, you run into two things with the Central American uh, Indians and with the Incas. An incredible savagery coupled with incredible docility. Mm-hmm. You see the same uh, paradox in the Slav, in in the Russian particularly. You remember the book The Holy Fools, where the interplay of savagery, of absolute abandon and absolute austerity alternating with each other. Now, scientifically speaking, we're talking here about a whole spectrum of activity that has become technological and divorced from morality. And any kind of human activity that divorces itself from from morality is monstrous. 
yes. But now we are being told that in the political sphere as well as the scientific sphere, morality has no relevance. We by, the, have by the same people who think that Hitler was a monster? <laughs> yes. But in uh, hospitals, they have now, to silence people, set up uh, ethics committees so that when there is a bit of surgery that is morally questionable or an experiment that is morally questionable or putting to death someone or allowing them to die, it is referred to the ethics committee which is expected to rubber stamp what is going to be done anyway. Well, Germany had set up ethics committee before Hitler. The German uh, hospitals and the German medical profession was practicing euthanasia before Hitler. It was already established when he came in. In fact, much of the machinery of the Nazis was in place when Hitler took over. The liberals had conquered in Germany after World War II with roots prior to World, I mean World War I, uh, with roots in the Bismarckian socialism, so that Hitler did not make an innovation. What Hitler did was to apply more rigorously everything that German society had been tending towards, which is exactly what we are doing now. Well, this is what we're talking about. The Ethics Committee, I saw an item in the paper tonight, where they have now decided on the basis of a few experiments that they will undertake liver transplants on alcoholics because they've discovered that those alcoholics who did undergo the operation and the operation was successful don't drink anymore. I uh, think it's remarkable how they come up with conclusions which eliminate the moral factor. Mm -hmm. Yes, well, of course, if you and I were to go, if, if we were to become very ill and a critical operation of that sort was to be considered and it would involve scarce machinery or medicines or whatever, we would not pass because we're past the age mm -hmm. where we would be considered uh, potentially useful citizens. Isn't that marvelous, Otto? They won't bother to experiment with us. That's true. They'd kill us, perhaps, if they could. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I, I think so. Only if we put ourselves but in their But they call hands. it uh, cutting off life support systems. Yes. And that brings you, you know, to what Hannah Arendt mentioned. Uh, she felt that the Nazis had verified what Orwell spoke about in Newspeak, where a new brand of language was devised. Yes. And one of the things she said about Eichmann was that all of his answers to his interrogators, both before the trial and during the trial, all of his answers were in the form of a jargon, a bureaucratic jargon. He could not speak precise and traditional German. He could only speak in uh, terms of a solution, a method, a process, and so forth. Now, to remove life support systems says nothing about the fact that somebody is being done to death. Yes. He never used the word death. The Nazis had an entire vocabulary to conceal from themselves and from everybody else 
the essential nature of what they were doing. Which is, of course, what the bureaucracy in this country is doing. They have a jargon to hide what they are doing, uh, to neutralize it as though their actions have no relevance in the lives of people, moral relevance. That's right. Well, uh, it's not simply there. It's true in, in, uh, in the media. Mm-hmm. Uh, why does the press ask some poor widow who's just seen her husband die how she feels? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the scientific attitude, you might say. At one time in ancient Greece, you recall, I can't think of his name offhand, that the painter whose name survived for centuries, up till our time, as a monster of depravity, because he went to the bedside of a dying man to paint his expression. And that man, that painter, was held aloft as a symbol of inhumanity and callousness up until our time. Our time, we've got so many of them, uh, they're uh, they're just doing their job. Perhaps one of these days, or perhaps it has happened, a widow who's asked how she feels in such a fearful situation will say <laughs> like using my handbag across the, your face sure or do it and do it yes or do it I mean why some of these people aren't belted I'll never know yes <laughs> well, well maybe someone will get the idea now <laughs> oh that's a good that's, I'm all for it uh, I, I should think it would be worth uh, paying a fine but this is really, I suppose, the nub of our argument with science. Two things. First, science has usurped religion. When Andrew Dixon White said the warfare of science against theology in Christendom, he described something that is still going on. And the warfare is, there are many salvos that come from the scientific side. Now, you recall the German Marxists who came over here fleeing Hitler and who brought with them logical positivism in which nothing that couldn't be seen or measured was held to be in existence yes and it was that uh, legal positivism that had led to the kind of law that made Hitler and his regime possible Uh, Hallowell traced it back to at least Darwin and pointed out how step by step the liberals by undermining Christianity and the Christian moral worldview prepared the way for Hitler and were able to work with him without any feeling of displacement well we have seen societies in which Christianity has been brushed aside We've seen the Soviet, we've seen the Nazis, we've seen the death camps, we've seen Paul Pot reducing his people by at least a third. We've seen Mao Zedong's China brushing aside all morality and the estimates run from 60 million up of people who were killed and his various purges and so forth. Yet, science sits here 
and sits in the West, I have yet to see a pronouncement by any concerned scientists or even unconcerned scientists about any of these terrible crimes anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. But they'll, they'll make issue statements on our political situation. Yes, interesting. Uh, in Cambodia, the first figures released on the basis of conversations at uh, the refugee camps indicated that uh, the Khmer Rouge had killed 50% of the people of Cambodia. Well, it's interesting. But you said Khmer Rouge, and that's the way they're reported. Nobody ever says Red Army. Yes. Now, increasingly that number is being diminished. Every time you hear a reference to it or read a reference to it in the media, it's coming down more and more. Mm -hmm. So it's going to wind up as being a handful. A large number. It'll, it'll be like the uh, deaths during the partition of India and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Several million. Several million. And now they're not even recorded at all. Mm -hmm. They simply say disorders. Yes. Our encyclopedias are changed just as regularly as the Soviets. Yes. Well, when you have destroyed any significance to man other than a product of chance variations, then his life doesn't matter much. And you have a growing depreciation of human life in our society. Well, when you remove morality from activity, then science itself is beginning to run into, as you know, an increasing number of fraudulent reports, yes. faked experiments, in order to get a large grant. And then we've run into such fantastic things as uh, books that cite authorities either falsely or actually invent authorities. Mm -hmm. And individuals are maintained in professorial positions even after they've been exposed as fraudulent. Well, and also plagiarism. Yes. Wholesale plagiarism. I saw to cite one alone, one book in which a chapter was lifted out of one of my writings, even to the footnotes, <laughs> and uh, I was not mentioned, of course. A person uh, is constantly getting sizable grants to carry on his work and uh, travels widely, uh, lives a marvelous life. Well, I saw a book on Robespierre that came out after mine, which attributed his fall to ridicule. And since I was the first one ever to make such an attribution, I looked immediately to see if I was listed in the sources. Of course, I wasn't. Yes, but I a whole chapter is pretty hard to forgive. It's, I, I, I would have, I would have called him up. <laughs> No, I, I would have had a conversation have, with that chap. Wouldn't have accomplished anything. Well, it would have been fun. I had a call from a law student saying uh, he had encountered a book recently that uh, this was not, not too long ago, which uh, was a rewriting of one of mine without any attribution or even a reference to me in the footnotes or the... Uh, uh, bibliography, and it was virtually uh, 
uh, verbatim citation uh, by the paragraph. This is becoming so routine and um, the courts really don't care unless it's something against a Hollywood studio, in which case uh, there's big money in it now. Indulge. Well, they've just about destroyed the laws of libel. Yes. They've destroyed the laws of slander. They've destroyed copyrights. There's a feeling, and I did an article on the copyright business, on the patents, actually. There was a uh, oil extended rubber patent which was filed and obtained by the O'Neills, General Tire and Rubber, at the end of World War II. Well, during the war, there had been a patent pool. You know, nobody filed for patents during the war. The idea was that monopoly laws were suspended during the war so that manufacturers could get together and produce most efficiently in the national interest. And the other rubber companies, and oil companies too, said that O'Neill broke the agreement by filing for this particular patent. But O'Neill's, the, uh, the general tire, that is, said it was developed in their lab after the war. Well, the patent was canceled. It was withdrawn by the U.S. Patent Office. So, of course, the O'Neills went to court to get the patent back. I mean, the idea that pressure of this sort could reach inside the patent office was a bit shocking. And I undertook to trace that particular story. And I discovered that the patent office is amenable to pressure and not only is it amenable to pressure, but the whole theory of the patent is no longer subscribed to by the American government. In the night up to the 19th century, if you invented something, you had a monopoly upon it for 28 years, and you, after that, it was common property. But the patent office decided that that was too selfish. So if you get a patent, you have to license others to do it because it's just too selfish of you to keep it for 28 years. Yes. So the whole basis of industrial technology, the whole basis of rewarding invention has been leached away. And yet I have yet to see a single article by a single scientific group on that very interesting topic. Well, if man, as I said earlier, is a product of chance variations and a struggle for survival, then morality is irrelevant. Uh, what matters then? Justice does not matter if no. everything is a matter of chance. Yes. So we've had justice, we've had morality, and we've had humanity go out the window as a result of the modern scientific outlook. Well, our time is just about up. Thank you all for listening. We do appreciate the suggestions you send for topics, and we have uh, tried to consider some of them. But remember, uh, a great many very fine subjects we omit because we don't feel we can talk for an hour on them, <laughs> or we don't know enough about them. So... Uh, Thank you for listening, and thank you for your suggestions. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.